Now, I'll be very, very much surprised indeed if I did not say, especially in my final point or two, things that you've never heard before or you flat out disagree with. That's totally cool. We can talk through it. Um, I, I, uh, I fully expect, if we don't have a discussion of this ABF, we never will. Um, before we get to that, I want to work through it. So that's point three. Before we get to it, let's work our way through the outline. First of all, any missing blanks? Lee. Oh, okay. Cause. Cause of the new birth. I don't think, I, you're right. I totally don't think I said that at all. Reality. So analogy contrasted with reality. Um, okay. So. 1C, Jesus Challenge. Jesus Challenge. 1C. I did that too, yeah. You're right. And I could not think of a word that starts with N that means cause. I was... The need? The nader. The nader? <laughs> Deb. Yes, knowledge, position, and birth. Yeah, B as in birth. No, birth. Yeah. Okay. So, let's we'll stick with we'll stick with question point one for a moment. Questions about Nicodemus, who he is, what he's doing, and Jesus' initial response to him. Questions on that? Yes, Mr. Walter. In John seven fifty one, about it talks about Nicodemus being one of them. What does that mean? He's one of the Pharisees. Okay. I mean, let's take a look at it. Let's let's go. Let's go there. John seven. Next, next. You guys should be proud of me. I did not say Nick at night once. Half, half of you are too, half. No, no, it doesn't count in here. It doesn't count in here. See, I, some of you guys are so young, you have no idea what I'm referencing. But, but, uh, and others of you can be like, sing the song. Nick, 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 Nick. Okay. Seven what? 51. Um, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them. Now, the one, so go back to 45. Actually, go back to 40. Um, this, the, the, where we're at here is it's the Feast of Booths, and Jesus has sort of popped up guerrilla style in the middle without any... Well, the reason I say guerrilla style is his brothers at the beginning of seven are like, go up publicly with a big entourage, and he goes up secretly, and he just stands up in the middle of the temple in the high day of the feast, and he starts preaching. And the Pharisees don't like that. Um... When they had heard these words, some of the people said, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, um, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him, and some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers um, came to the chief priests and Pharisees. Oh, no, sorry, back further, 32. 
Sorry, 30. Ah, look, I wasn't prepped to do seven. Okay. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers. So the chief priests and Pharisees send the officers. And then the officers come back empty-handed in 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, why did you not bring them? The officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, the Pharisees were the chief priests. The Pharisees almost certainly. So the point being, he's still in that group. Even though here he's beginning to push back a little, I still wouldn't call him a disciple of Jesus yet. But what we're seeing is, the very least, is an internal critique. Guys, we claim to uphold the law. Does our law really condemn somebody before it hears them out? Now, he didn't stop them from sending the chief priest to arrest Jesus, but he's at least thinking and starting to see, maybe we're not the good guys. <laughs> you know, are we the bad guys? You know, like that type of thing. So uh, this is a, a movement point for him. And then by 19, he's publicly willing to be seen as a disciple. Um, yeah. So good question. Okay, any other questions on point one? Nicodemus' confession, his person, or Jesus' challenge to him? Um, yes, Lucas. I think it was the passage, it was in the book of John 17, Nicodemus, from number three. John, John 17, what? It was John 18, verse three. John 18, verse 3. Okay, let's see what's in John 18. One second. 18, 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers, and the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. 18, 3. Okay. The same triumvirate, the, yeah, the same triumvirate does it again, and this time they get him. Okay, got, good, excellent. So my framing of Nicodemus, this is sort of questions on my framing, because that Nicodemus is one of those who believed in Jesus' name, but Jesus doesn't entrust himself to, um, is, is what I'm taking pains to argue is what we're seeing here. And again, it's not that Nicodemus' faith is bad. It's not that it's bad that he thinks Jesus has come from God. It's, it's not like it's demonic faith or it's dead faith. He, Nicodemus clearly does not think Jesus is the Christ or the Son of God. And remember, that's why John's writing. He, Jesus is a miracle worker come from God and a teacher, which is good. It ain't enough. And part of Nicodemus' problem, I'm arguing, is he thinks he's qualified to evaluate messianic contenders. He thinks he's, he's qualified to, I, I'd recognize the Messiah when I see him. And so Jesus' response to Nicodemus is along the lines of, um, if you want to tell me something that can't happen unless God, let me tell you something else that can't happen unless God, which is you can't see unless God, um, Nick. So that's, that's my simp simplified version of framing this. Okay. Any other questions on point one? I know all the questions should be on point three. So, Oh. It's kind of an open-ended question, but... Uh, in response to 1C, Jesus' response, I think that was when you, re and I could be wrong here, I think that's when you referenced there's a difference between being born again and saving faith. Can we talk about that? 
I'll get to that in th- point three. When I get to point, oh, three, point three, yes, okay. yes, that's one of the easily the two most contra- surprising controversial. Like, yeah, I expect full discussion on all that, which is great. Yes. Um, so, point two: the nature of the new birth. So, so the, in the first round. I'm arguing Nicodemus completely misunderstands Jesus and thinks he's talking about natural birth and thinks it's a little ridiculous. And again, I don't want to paint this too negatively, like he's mocking Jesus. He clearly feels free to disagree. And that's kind of the contrast. If God really, Nicodemus, if you really think God has sent a a miracle-working teacher, he doesn't quite call him a prophet, but a miracle-working teacher, and it's been 400 years since Malachi, Maybe you should shut up and listen. And, and it's not that Nicodemus is being hostile, but I think he's acting with Jesus far closer to a peer than to someone highly above him. That's, so I don't want to make it sound like he's laughing at Jesus. But in the same way that like Daniel and I debating, or, or even you might talk to someone with more qualifications than you. You might talk to a, a scientist with a PhD, but you still feel, feel like, that doesn't make sense. Like You're still independent and autonomous and not under any sort of obligation to receive what they say, which belies the point that Nicodemus doesn't really think Jesus is a teacher come from God, would be my, by the end of this, when he's still... Okay, so he misunderstands the first time, fair enough. Although his added, how can this be, can a man... That's kind of ridiculous, Jesus. Then as Jesus elaborates, connects it to Ezekiel, his next response, we didn't get to this morning, how can these things be? Is still, yeah, I, no way. And again, not that he's totally rejecting Jesus, but it's, it sets up Jesus. You don't receive what I'm saying. You don't believe me. Yeah. Uh, microphone. Well, he's also kind of rejecting um, the scripture from Ezekiel because it says all this kind of weird stuff. God's going to give you a heart of flesh. Well, how could God, God do that? Well, that's how... He just does it by his spirit. Right. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, he wasn't prepared for that either. Right. 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 Okay. Number two, the nature of the new birth. So then the movement is Jesus corrects Nicodemus and he, he spells it out. It's, so let me, let me unpack a little further. I, because we're running out of time, I didn't go over all the different ways people try to take this. So some people have argued that Jesus' statement in verse um, Five, unless one is born of water and spirit means two different things. Jesus would be saying, in effect, unless one is born naturally of women and of the spirit. And I don't think that's what he's saying because this is parallel to born again. Unless, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot. I think water and spirit reference one reality. I think when we get to Ezekiel, it's clear it does. And then the second point being, what is water and the spirit? And there are people who think there's all sorts of weird options. Um, some have even suggested, weirdly, how do I say this politely? Um, that the original birth, well, first the people tried to say was the water, like the water breaking. There's just no evidence that anyone used that expression in that time. They actually do find one reference to the male contribution and begetting as water. That's the polite way I'll say it. Although that seems really strained as well. Um, but they at least found one ancient reference to that. Um, one commentator did. No, I think it's clearly the water is the water, but the baptism is the other big one. This is, so you got to be baptized and then born of the spirit. 
the problem is that's alien to John's context and is alien to the Old Testament context. If this is, if everything hinges upon Jesus' rebuke, you're the teacher of Israel, you don't know this, means, I think, this is contained in the Old Testament and therefore you're accountable for it and therefore you should be ashamed if you call yourself the teacher of Israel and you don't follow with me, right? And so, because the whole thing with John's baptism is the Pharisees like, what is this? What's going on? The Old Testament didn't prohibit it, but the Old Testament didn't predict, I'm going to send a baptizer. Um, so that points backwards into the Bible for water and spirit. And then when you land at Ezekiel, it, I think, settles it. But, but there is some that want to argue this is baptism and spirit birth, meaning like baptism, regeneration, things like that. And I want to try to close the door to that option that that wouldn't be something taught in the Old Testament. You could not teach in the Old Testament. You need to be baptized with water and born of the spirit. At least I, I don't know where you'd find that taught. So, okay. So Jesus distinguishes that it's the Spirit's birth and that it's predicted in Ezekiel. T turn to Ezekiel. I want to show you something else in preparation for our nice controversial point. Um, and then I'll open it up to you guys. And by, by the way, let me preface this by saying... Issues on the sovereignty of God, um, issues on sovereignty of God over salvation, what's sometimes referred as Calvinism and Arminianism, you can wrestle with. You don't have to be on the same page as me. I, I think the Bible is clear. I'm going to argue what I think it teaches, but like we can we can be friends and have a burger and be wrestling through this. So like if you're like, oh, I don't think that, that's cool. We'll have a good discussion. That's fine. Like we're opening the Bible. We're talking through it together. It's cool. Um, and, and people wrestle with this stuff, even some of the most staunch Calvinists going testified to years of wrestling through these topics. So don't feel bad or don't feel like this could be conflict. If you're like, I don't know, or I don't, or I totally disagree. Totally cool. We'll have, we'll have a God honoring conversation. That said, back in Ezekiel 36, turn back to 18. Turn back to 18 chapters earlier. Ezekiel 18. Part of the reason why I think I'm right in my understanding of what Jesus is saying about your absolute helpless dependence on God to birth you either is, is the very setting in the context of Ezekiel. You see, in Ezekiel 36, God promises to wash and to give you a new spirit, to give you a new heart. Look at, look at 1830 and 31. Therefore, O house of Israel, everyone, O house of Israel, Okay. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. Make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. God commands them to do this thing, which they can't do. And then he lets it hang for 18 chapters. 18 chapters. Here's, what, here's how you're going to avoid wrath and judgment. Make yourself a new spirit and a new heart. You must be born again. It sets them in that same helpless condition of, I, how do I, I mean, how do, you, how do you do this? I'm going to go home this afternoon. I'm going to make myself a new heart and a new spirit. Good luck with that. You get to 36. 
And the wonderful news is God saying to them in 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be cleaned from all your uncleanness from your idols. I will cleanse you and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put with you. In other words, God says, here's what I require. And he's willing to let it hang for 18 chapters before finally saying, I will perform in you what I require. That seems similar in context to Nicodemus. You are utterly, helplessly dependent on God's spirit. You are not nearly as able as you think you are. You have, you have, your situation is far more precarious and you are far more powerless than you think. It's, it's scary and humbling. I think that's a similar context to what I'm arguing Jesus is saying. So that's, so now having said all that, we're at point three, let it grip, go questions, challenges. Let, let me make, let me hit your question. You asked Tim. Yeah. Give it back to Tim. Ask your question again, Tim. You're asking me to remember what I said. <laughs> You said something about me saying right. being born again and saving faith yeah. are not the same yeah. thing. Yeah. The contrast between those, sure. as if they're two different things. Yes. Okay. Yes. That was the question. Okay. Okay. So, as I understand salvation, and I think even for people who think the new birth is a result of faith, they still see it as distinct. Okay. The, the, the mechanism of salvation, or to use uh, Plato's categories, the instrumental means of justification is faith. So the the so in in Plato's use he's got the material means. So you think of a sculptor, the stone is the material. The efficient means is the sculptor. And the um no, the efficient means is the sculptor and the instrumental means is the chisel in his arm. Christ's work on the cross is the material. So in one sense we're saved by Christ's work. We're saved by God's salvation. God's the 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 uh, sculptor, but instrument that applies, that, that makes the change, ha- that connects, unites us to Christ is our faith. No question. And you have to believe. The Bible is clear on that point. So on what is the instrumental means of justification? Pass, fail, faith. Plus, minus, nothing. God does not forgive sins. God does not, uh, does not, you are not saved apart from faith. But that said, there are other elements in salvation that accompany it, like the adoption of sons and daughters, right? So in Romans 8, we're adopted. So that's part of, but it's distinct from faith. And I don't mean distinct in time, like you get saved and then your adoption card comes in the mail a week later. But rather, you can, you can look at them and distinguish them as you look at them, right? Well, one of the things we, that is not faith be, is being born again. Um, which I think there are numerous biblical metaphors for. In fact, one of the things, if we have time, I'd like to do is look at some of them. I think they'd include what we saw here, having a new heart, heart of stone replaced by heart of flesh, um, having a new spirit put within you, being baptized by the spirit, being washed by the spirit, um, the having a veil, Second Corinthians 4, the God of this world is blinding their hearts from seeing the gospel, the glorious gospel of the... Oh man, hold on. I got it written down here. Um, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of God, which is fixed when God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light. So the removal of the veil, Jesus, ears that see and eye, ears, <laughs> eyes that see and ears that hear. That's another matter. In every, the similar characteristic is something like an analogy of spiritual sensory inactivity. An organ of sense, eyes, ears, heart, are not functioning properly. 
Um, so you have ears that hear and eyes that see. You have a stone heart, so a heart of flesh. So the, the common picture seems to be spiritual sensory numbness, inactivity, um, paralysis, something like that. Um, the other term in, in Titus is regeneration. That's another term. Birth is used in a couple places as well. And I think they're all speaking to the same reality. Some sort of principle in, in inward principle is changed. You were, or you were alive and you were dead, raised with Christ. Same. I think we're all talking about the same thing here. I think all those passages, Ephesians 2, are all referencing the same reality. That is distinct from me believing. Now, the question really is going to be the cause and effect relationship. Now, let me, let me qualify what I'm arguing a step further, and then I'll open up to challenges or questions or whatever. These, this is, I think Tim, Tim, Tim Schoenfeld said this a couple weeks ago as well. It's a logical ordering. Did he say it's a logical ordering? Not a, in other words, I think we can go so far as to say this enables this or this causes this without setting up some temporal ordering. In one sense, when flipping the light switch in this room is the cause of the lights turning on. They're virtually indistinguishable in regards to time. I'm, I'm arguing the cause and effect relationship, not people get born again at 302 and then at 305, they exercise faith. In fact... Um, the other two pass, two other passages credit the agency of the new birth to the word. Let me read those to you. So James 1, 18, of his own will, he brought us forth or begat us by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So we're birthed by the word of truth. First Peter 1, 22 to 23, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth from a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through a living and abiding word of God. So in first Peter one and in James one, the new birth is credited to the working of the word of God. And in John, it's credited to the Holy Spirit from which I conclude the new birth is the Holy Spirit applying, working with the instrument of the word, life in someone's heart, which would then mean the new, the Holy Spirit is not going to, let's use the analogy of Second uh, Corinthians 4. The Holy Spirit is not going to remove the veil without Christ and the gospel front and center. He's not going to open blind eyes to see nothing. And so it's going to be almost instantaneous where all of a sudden you see Christ in this beauty. You, you see your sin and it's, it's vileness and you can't help. You just want Jesus and you, you, no one but you reaches out in faith and you're saved. I think that's kind of the point of the analogy of the wind. We can't detect the new birth apart from its evidences, its sound, which is people coming to faith. So it'd be pointless to talk about regenerate non-believing people. Just like it'd be pointless about talking about the wind that doesn't make sound. Apart from, in Jesus' analogy, apart from sound, you have no knowledge of where the wind is or what it's doing. You hear it sound. That's, that's, with those clarifications, come at me. I think what I want to say. So the difference between being born again and faith, is it fair to say that God's sovereignty or, or the being born again is, is purely an act of, of God's will and has nothing to do with us, whereas 
faith is is on us to believe. Sure. In simple terms. In simple terms, we are inactive in the new birth. I am arguing we are inactive in the new birth. To you, you want to use a theological category? It's monergistic, mono, an acting of one, one person at work, one person's activity, as opposed to a synergy, um, two working together. The new birth, I'm arguing, is a monergistic, one person acting, not me. I, I'm passive. I'm acted upon work of God. As a po- and I'd say my faith is, is me believing, and then I'd say our, our sanctification um, and you'd want to qualify this, but I would insist we are active in our sanctification. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's a God who's at work. So I'm working, God's working my sanctification. In one sense, Zeb, then, sanctification is synergistic. You can't, I'm working, God's working in my sanctification. We've, I thought we talked, we've talked about this before, but okay. Okay. Um, no, so I'd say sanctification, sanctification, as long as we understand whose initiative is, is, is foundationally essential, is both God and me working. I'm at work in sanctification. God's at work in my sanctification. There's a, there's a synergistic aspect to that. Um, but the new birth is, and I think that's the tenor of John, right? Not born of the will of man or the flesh, but of God. Of his own will, he brought us forth by, by first fruits. And in the context here, humbling and silencing Nicodemus who is unable to do anything. Yeah. Okay. Kevin. Microphone. Okay. So this, this topic is always <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, really graded at me, but how do oh. you, how do you deal with that tension? Because uh, obviously it's humbling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it better be extremely humbling yeah. for everybody. That's a believer. Uh, but as a parent that you're trying to bring your children to faith, you, you feel a desire to almost convince them or, uh, but it's, it's hard to accept that we have no, or it seems like we have no power, uh, for lack of better word yeah. to, to bring them to the knowledge of saving faith because I, I accept this. Yeah. Don't get me yeah. wrong. No, 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 I, I got accept you. I got this, you. but this is very hard to, yes. to relinquish this knowing that God is in con- total control of this, even though I know that. Right. How do you deal with that? Let me ask one clarifying question. You say we're powerless. Would in the other alternative, would we be powerful? I mean, I think I think part of the problem is we're powerless either way. Yes, we are. Even if it's all man's free volitional will and nothing but man's free volitional will, every parent, or not every parent, thousands of generations of parents testify we're powerless to make our children believe, right? So we are powerless in that regard. Uh, the question would be why. I take more comfort in praying to a God who can save my children then praying for God who the best he can do is give them a free, balanced, fair choice. I take comfort in God telling me he wants me to pray like a persistent widow pleading for justice and mercy. I take comfort knowing these things that I'm praying are in accordance with his will. Um, That'd be the, the first thing I'd say. And the other thing is, even though I'm arguing God's the decisive actor, in, we looked at 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says, here's how you regard Apollos and I, fellow slaves or workmen. 
I water I planted Apollos watered, God gave the growth. You can still keep planting and planting and planting that seed. In other words, if the whole if this is the the tool, the instrument the Holy Spirit uses in accomplishing the birth, I can certainly make sure there's no lack of it present. I can um Titus I can adorn or make beautiful the doctrine of God. I can't change the doctrine of God. The, the Greek is literally dress it up, but I can make sure it, I, you can certainly make the gospel look ugly by being a hypocrite and being unright. You know what I mean? Well, we can make the gospel look attractive. Um, we can, we can make it look desirable. We can do all those things. Um, but at the end of the day, if I thought it was on me, go to go to uh, go to Second Timothy. Two. This is a similar but not identical context, but. What I want to point out here is here's a context where explicitly the text says God grants repentance. God gives repentance. And yet I'm fully responsible for my end of the equation. It's not like that means it's nothing to do with me. Here's So here it is. The Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome. Sorry, 224. The Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So that's on me. And it's on me whether or not the next clause ends up happening or not. God may perhaps grant them, gift them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. So as a parent, I'm not a success if my kids come to faith, and I'm not necessarily a failure if they don't. I'm a success and a failure if I've been faithful to do what I've been called to do. So there is a freeing element there. It, it, it also means if your children don't come to faith, it doesn't in, inherently mean you're a failure, which I think would be a heavy, heavy weight. It, it might mean I might have made the doctrine of God look ugly. I might have exasperated and provoked, and I'm sure at times I do. But the standard to which I'm judged is was I faithful with what God told me in this instance, it would be, you're not being a jerk and you're being patient and you're teaching and you're being willing to be wronged. Okay. If that's what you're doing, you're, you're being faithful regardless of the response. And it also means if they come to faith, it doesn't guarantee you are good. God can grant some repentance, even when I'm totally bungling my responsibility. Um, so I, there's a flip side of freedom. If I thought I could argue someone into salvation, I'd never sleep at night. I'd just, if only I'd said, if only I'd talked to them a little longer, if only I'd thought of this other thing to say instead of that thing to say, if only I hadn't said that stupid thing, I'd play those games all night. So you're right. It's hard. I'm saying the other alternative is I think harder, more difficult. It's not like the other option is like, oh, then everything makes sense. I, I think either way it's hard as parents. We want our kids to be saved. That's hard. Well, I guess for me, it's not yeah, yeah. I, what I'm hearing you say is uh, maybe I feel guilty for my son or daughter just choosing. T but that's not the, that's not it. The, the hard it's part not, is yeah. the hard part is knowing. I, I mean, I'm not looking for um, a pat on the back for bringing my children okay. to faith. I'm, yeah, yeah. 
I'm more worried that it comes to the end of their life and they yeah. and God hasn't chosen them to. Sure. You so, see okay. what I mean? That's yeah, the yeah. tension that's very hard to accept. Then I would encourage you to take hope that the ev- that your zeal for your children is an evidence that God means them well. Let me explain what I mean. Your compassion for your children and their ultimate salvation, where did that come from? Did that well up from your goodness of your heart? I think that's a grace of God. So God has graced you where he has given you a passion and a burden and a concern for the salvation of your kids. Why do you think he did that? I mean, I would operate in hope. When I, when I feel burdened for people, when I can't get someone off my mind, I oftentimes think, I wonder if the Lord's put them on my heart because he's planning to do something, because he's planning to work with them. Um, so I would, it's not a guarantee, but the, the more burden my heart, is, it gets back to the persistent widow. I can't guarantee if you pray enough, they'll get saved, but something like that, like, don't give up. Jesus, in, Jesus anticipates we will be prone to giving up and saying, what's the use? Don't do that. He says, pray con- persistently. I like goes widow. And so the more you're praying and the more you're crying out to God, the more evidence it is of God's grace in your heart for their salvation. I would be operating in hope and not despair that he's doing that because he plans to glorify himself and save him that i'd i'd be hopeful when i when i find myself really 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 burdened for someone the more burdened i become actually the more hopeful i get that what i'm wanting god's intending to do so that's that's and at the end of the day the judge of the world will do right um and that's hard when that isn't a promise. Um, that isn't a promise. Does that is that help better? It's it's no, it's hard, man. It's hard. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm just saying the alternative. You could blame yourself. If it's totally up to them, then why didn't you make a better argument? Why didn't you set a better example? Why didn't you have better answers? Maybe you could have convinced them. So you may not feel that. I'm just saying, if you didn't, if it wasn't, if the decisive act wasn't in God, I think you'd have to. I'd have to. And so... There you go. There you go. There you go. Okay. Timothy. Well, yeah, I mean, just to comment on that, I think part of my spiritual journey is like, the more you understand that, uh, yeah, I mean, it's almost like... as a parent, you almost don't want to think about it for too long, but, but it also, it really organizes and prioritizes things to this place of, if I really believe what I believe, I need to be, um, or it helps me be a little bolder in sharing my faith mm. and living out my faith because you realize how much else doesn't matter that gets cluttered. I mean, I've grown up in the church and you see a lot of you know, you can have experiences where people are putting a lot of emphasis on things that are not eternal or biblical or, you know, the final, you know, uh, things that matter. So it kind of organizes it to, you know, yeah, you really think uh, it's, it's heaven and hell in the balance. And if I believe what I believe, then I'm inclined to maybe step out of my comfort zone because the consequences for this other person or myself or whoever, you know, it's, it, there's so much bigger and than, than the little things that may separate us or the little uncomfortable, ah, oh, they may laugh at me or 
now oh, these are my friends they're not gonna understand you know they they know me from times before and whatever mm-hmm. it's like no this is too important to right. to just i don't know because you can run the risk of like, well, it's all fatalistic. God's made all of his decisions and who's going to get saved. And I can just coast and oh, good. I'm, I'm in, I guess. Yeah. But that's not the example we get from the guys that walked around with Jesus. They all went to their graves, almost all of them untimely because they were defending this and teaching and were admonished to preach and all this kind of stuff. So they obviously didn't have a feeling like we play no part in this. They saw that, no, we need to be out making disciples and we need to be preaching this word because somehow it's going to matter whether, whether, and we, we can't take credit for it, but it's, it's, it's like the only thing that matters. Go to, go to Philippians two. That's an excellent point, Timothy. Um, as much as I've grant, grant the prima facie sensibleness of saying, well, if these things are ultimately decisively works of God, what's the point of doing anything, praying, witnessing, anything. There's elect or the non-elect. That type of reasoning is exactly opposite Paul's reasoning. Um, and in the Philippians, we see the... Uh, Philippians 2. Um, where is it? Uh, yeah, 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, Greek energo, we got the word energy from, this is, just to be clear, it's an active word, it's imperative, work out, get to work, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So that's the command. We got a command here that involves activity on our part. Why? Then Then he gives a ground. Why would you give such a command, Paul? For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The reason I need to get to work is because God's motivating and causing me to work. To which I would say, my natural intuition would say, well, if it's the case that God is going to make me want to do stuff and then make sure I follow through and do stuff, I can sit back and relax. Paul sings precisely because God's at work within you, causing you to will and to accomplish his good pleasure. Get out there and start working. I agree with you, Timothy, entirely. That's the apostolic logic. Because God is actively saving, because God's purposes can't be thwarted, because God's spirit cannot be resisted, because God's word will bear fruit and won't return void. I want to take part in this. I want to get out there and make part of it. The same rationale and logic, which gets to Jesus Statements about prayer, um, praying without ceasing like the, like the widow. Yeah, I, I think we've got to resist the, 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 the logic that takes us down to apathy and inactivity. The, the way, I mean, there's a strong statement of sovereignty. God is, it is God who works in me to do two things, both to will, that's desire, and to work for his good pleasure. That's why I need to get to work. Because God's causing me to want to and to work, which, okay. Um, we could, I mean, theologians have come up with a name for that, but naming something doesn't explain it. I mean, C.S. Lewis, great quote by Lewis, talking about the danger of when you name something thinking you understand it. The term is to the compatibilism or concurrence. And he says, to say that birds fly south by instinct is to simply say we don't know how they fly south. You know, naming the mystery 
doesn't mean we understand the mystery. What's instinct? It's whatever the thing is that I don't know what it is that causes them to fly south. That's what instinct is, right? Um, what's concurrence? It's some, It's the way that somehow that I can understand God's sovereignty and human responsibility fit together seamlessly. That's what it is. So you're just drawing a circle around the mystery. You're not understanding the mystery. But, but to the degree that concurrence or compatibilism means there is no necessary conflict in God's sovereignty and human volition and responsibility. You certainly, yeah. Um, I, I, I agree the Bible teaches you can do whatever you want. You're responsible for what you do. Your choices have real, real weight. Anyone who wants Jesus can have him. Anyone, no one. Jesus, the same gospel, Jesus says a number of things in John. He says he turns no one away who comes to him. There is nobody on this earth who wants Jesus, who wants to believe in him, who wants to come to him, that Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, no, get away from here. Um, The same Jesus also insists in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless my father who sent me draws him. And so I think what this is getting at would be something like, you can't desire Jesus. You can't want him apart from a work of God in your heart. And this is the crucial next piece. And that's your own fault and doing. The, the biblical picture, because when you hear about inability, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God, would be, well, if, it's, if I'm unable, it's not my fault. Except we'd recognize differences. If... I gave this example in a sermon like 10 years ago. If I hired Greg Rolak to mow my lawn and I paid him ahead of time, so now he's obligated to mow my lawn, and I tell him, now, Greg, just so you know, there's a pit in the corner of my lawn. Stay away from it. Don't jump in it. And I get in my car and I go on vacation. And as soon as I go, Greg looks around and he goes and jumps in the pit. And I come back a week later. And I say to him, Greg, I paid you. Why didn't you mow my lawn? And he says, you can't blame me. I'm, I'm in this pit. I can't get out of it. Well, we, I would blame him if he jumped in the pit. I can blame you for not being able to see if you're the one who gouged your eyes out. And something like that is at play here. Man ought to be. It's part, part of why Ezekiel can say, you ought to make for yourself a new heart, a new spirit. Your sinfulness, my sinfulness, is my own doing, is my fault. I'm responsible for inability. My blindness is my fault. My deafness is my fault. My stone heart is my fault. Which means then it's all grace. God's not obligated. You does that does that make any sense? That's another critical piece in this. Okay, Wanda in the back, and then I think we gotta stop. I can stick around for a few more minutes, but Wanda in the back. A flashlight? Oh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Two things. Yes. Thank you for your good examples down to earth, <laughs> but I got a dense brain. Okay. If you, yeah. if God blows the spirit on you or calls you that way. Yeah. Okay. So he's the one that calls you. Yeah. Can you say no? I don't. I think because the part that where it says um, you choose darkness, is that what that means? He's called you, but you chose it or everybody he calls responds. Yes. Probably the best text to suggest you could refuse. I don't think you can would be um, would be um, who who gets killed. Is it not is it not Philip? Who's Acts seven and eight? Stephen, you resist the Holy Spirit. He accuses Israel of that. Um, that'd be the best argument I could make. Um, 
I'd argue from other texts, no. I don't think here we have an answer. I my short answer would be no. When the spirit begets life, he brings it to. He, there's no stillbirths in 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 regeneration. Um, but I don't think I could prove that from John three. I'd, I'd go to the I'd go to Romans eight twenty eight and following to try to prove that. But okay. yeah, what? So then, how can you be? Re- okay, so then how can you say? I'm responsible for rejecting God because he didn't call me. Because, okay, here, here's, here's the analogy. I told let's you use, I was dense. Use, no, let's, <laughs> no, no, let's pick, no, 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 this is great. Let's pick one spiritual organ, sight, and use that metaphor. Jesus is beautiful. All who can see, see that. And they respond to that with adoration and love. They do it freely, but in another sense, they're not free not to. Because he's beautiful. You can't help it, right? I mean, that's the nature of God's glory and beauty. It, it's, it's not like when you hear a great symphony, yeah, I think I'll like that. You, you don't, the music you like, you just like, man. I mean, you can train yourself to like something. But you've, we all know what it's like to hear a song or piece of music, and it just moves us. Jesus is compelling. This movie is glorious, right? There's not an angel. There's not a person. There's not a creature that looks at God's like... I can see how others think that's beautiful and gorgeous, but I, I you know, I, I like other things. He is compellingly beautiful. So if we gouge out our eyes or we put a veil over our face to hide us from that glory, like the Israelites, this is Paul's metaphor in, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, then it's my fault I can't see his beauty and his glory. I'm responsible for this veil. I can be blamed for that. The fact that I'm helpless to take it off after I put it on is, is a separate issue. So I can fully be blamed if it's my fault the veil's on. And you ought to see it as beautiful and good and right. Okay. Thank does you. That, does that, that did, yeah. I, mean, I think that's that did. What, what this gets to is the doctrine of original sin um, is, I think, a crucial component to this framing of things. That we, you and I are truly, really guilty in Adam. And so our being born dead in our trespasses and sins is our fault like we it's it's our guilt no one gets to say it's not my fault that adam did something adam is my representative um adam is my head and and that what i think would be taught in romans 5 but that none of that's here but the the point is people are responsible to believe paul can say god has commanded all men everywhere to repent and believe he says this in acts and yet you can have made yourself powerless to obey that command anyway Godspeed, God bless, God day. Thank you.